this is a, a one-off. We're taking a break from our regular morning series while John's away preaching at Hearn Bay with the Bus family. He messaged to say that they are in very good form. Uh, I'm sure they send their greetings to us as we send ours to them. Uh, so we're going to be in Acts 4. Great, by the way, to have Chet and Marcy with us visiting from the States. Chet and Marcy were here for some time a little while ago. They were a great encouragement to us as a church family. Uh, Chet was often the first face you saw as you walked in through the front doors. And it's your 40th, you're celebrating your 40th wedding anniversary, aren't you? So, fantastic. Great to see you. Acts chapter 4. I'll give it a little bit more context um, during the, the message in a moment. So we're going to dive in at chapter 4 and verse 23. One bit of context that might be helpful to know is that Peter and John have just been arrested for preaching the good news of Jesus Christ. 4 verse 23, when they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. In other words, stop preaching. And when they heard it, they lifted their voice, voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, and here comes the quotation from Psalm 2, which we heard earlier, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness, while you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Let's pray together for God's help. Father, we praise you again that you are the sovereign Lord, sovereign over everything you've made, which is everything there is. And so we pray that in your sovereignty, you would reign over us and teach us to submit to your word and teach us particularly to pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Ladies and gentlemen, please put your seatbelts on. Turbulence ahead. If you've ever taken an airplane anywhere, there's a good chance you've heard those words over the PA or, or at least seen the, the seatbelt sign come on with the, the beat, the noise, whatever it is. Now, you know, if you've been in that situation, it's nothing particularly to worry about. That turbulence is perfectly normal on a flight. It's very common. And it's very normal in church life as well. And sometimes the reason for turbulence in church life is internal. And maybe certain people in church are struggling to get along. Maybe some doctrinal disagreement has come up. Or maybe it's simply that a beloved senior minister has announced his retirement and the church is facing a pastoral vacancy. It's a sort of a turbulence, isn't it, if we're honest? Uh, sometimes the turbulence comes from outside of the church, of course, and that was the case here in the church in Acts 4. They would have their own internal 
uh, turbulence as well later on, but this is particularly external. Let's do a quick refresher on Acts if we haven't been in it for a while. Remember that the book of Acts begins with the risen Lord Jesus training his apostles in gospel ministry. They're in gospel boot camp for a while with him, and then Jesus returns to heaven and to the throne. And there with Jesus on his throne, Peter then preaches that amazing sermon at Pentecost. And his message at Pentecost is simple, but it's world-changing. God has made this crucified Jesus, the one they had seen crucified, God has made him king. He is now the sovereign Lord, the sovereign king over all that God has made. Now, the crowds, as they hear Peter, are cut to the heart. They repent. They turn away from their sin. They bow the knee to King Jesus. And in great numbers, they form an assembly, a gathering, a church. By chapter 3, though, the Jewish authorities are getting twitchy about this new movement. It's a threat to their power and to the established order. And Peter is preaching the moving of the center of God's saving plans away from the old structures and on to the Lord Jesus and his kingdom. And so they arrest Peter and John, and they forbid them from preaching anymore. Now, you talk about turbulence. Now, how would you react if tomorrow morning you heard that two of the elders had been arrested for preaching the gospel? They'd taken John Samuel and taken Paul Chambers, too, for good measure. And now the other elders are looking at each other nervously. Who's going to be next? And the next Sunday, with John and Paul still in prison, police officers are standing at the back of the auditorium during the service, noting everything down on their pads. That's turbulence, isn't it? Well, in Acts 4, Peter and John are released, but the warning shot has been fired. The message they've been sent by the authorities is direct. Keep preaching about Jesus, and next time it's going to be worse for you. It's all very unsettling. And of course, the church had a range of options then, and we would have a range of options now if something similar happened. You know, we could uh, mobilize an army of letter writers to the local MP. I'm sure we'd get on the phone to the Christian Institute or similar. What did they do in Acts chapter 4? They prayed. They prayed. What we see here in Acts 4 is a church at prayer. And their example is an inspiration to every other church that's ever faced any kind of turbulence themselves. So let's look at their example in three stages. What do churches facing turbulence do? First, verse 23, they come together. They come together. Notice that in verse 23. Their first instinct, the apostles' first instinct there in verse 23, is to go find the other disciples and tell them what happened. Now, we may think that's a small thing, and it sounds very obvious, but it fits a broader pattern in the book of Acts. And so, for example, when the book of Acts begins, we find the apostles and the rest of the disciples together in an upper room. Being together is their natural habitat. And when Peter preaches that dynamite sermon at that first Pentecost, and 3,000 people are baptized, I mean, how on earth did they do that? It's logistically difficult enough to baptize three people here on a Sunday morning. How are they baptizing 3,000? I don't know. Anyway, two verse, chapter 2, verse 41 tells us, there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Added. They were added. Added to what? Added to the church, to each other. And then when that first added together church is described in 2 verses 42 to 47, if you've got your Bibles open, you could just flick back there and have a look with me. 
And they're devoted, have a look, verse 42. What are they devoted to? To verse 42. The apostles' teaching. And then notice, and the fellowship, that is, to each other. They're devoted to each other. They're glued together. And they're so glued together, verse 44, they had all things in common. And verse 45, they're selling their possessions so that they can help each other. Verse 46, they're in the temple together. They're in their homes together. And in verse 47, every day more and more people are joining them. They're being added to their number. They're together. And it's a sign that they understand the profound change that becoming a Christian has made in their lives. They know that God has made them members together of one body. We talk about membership quite a bit here. You'll see us welcoming in new members uh, on Sunday mornings. Now, we're not the only organization with a sort of membership, though, or partnership, but you can get a sort of membership at Tesco, can't you? You get a a club card, you scan it to get money off, you get points on it for purchases, which you probably, if you're like me, you never spend. Uh, But it's it's a consumer relationship. I pay money, I get rewards. It's a sort of membership, but it makes no difference whatsoever to my relationship with other shoppers, does it? To be honest, the other shoppers sometimes get in my way. And we all have club cards, but we're not really a club. We're all just still individuals hunting down the reduced aisle. Is that what membership is to be here? Or you might think of gym membership. Uh, Say you pay money, and around here it's a lot of money, isn't it? And you get access to the gym. And look, it might be nice to have other people in the gym at the same time, but to be honest, it might not. An empty gym is a wonderful thing. I can go as slow as I like in the swimming lanes. Nobody else minds. They're not there. Uh, You can use whatever machine I like. There's no waiting for other people to finish. You get the point. Becoming a member of a gym makes no difference at all to my relationship with other gym users. But church is different. And these early Christians understood that by joining themselves to Jesus by faith, God had joined them to each other as well. None of them were baptized into a vacuum. They were baptized into the church. And the rest of the New Testament spells it out for us. So uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12 and 13 says that just as the body is one and has many members... And all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. You see that? Not baptized into a vacuum. It isn't just me and Jesus. And baptism is like the the church's front door. They were baptized into one body. That's why all the way through church history, baptism has been so closely connected to church membership. In Christ, we are members of of one body. Just as my my right hand is connected to my left foot by being part of the same body, so Christians are joined, connected to each other. And not first of all by our choice, but by God's. What God has joined together, let no one separate. And these early Christians understood that. There was no Christian life lived in isolation. In a sense, In a qualified sense, there was no me anymore. There was us. And so whenever they could, 
they express that by being together, sharing their lives, their possessions, everything. Of course, the moment turbulence hit, we find the church together. Now, we've noted together before that one of the effects of those terrible lockdowns, which I'm sure we all want to forget, was to push us to think about who we are to each other. When we couldn't physically meet, we realized how much we missed it, didn't we? Several of people have since said that the moment they realized how much they really missed being with other Christians was the first time they came back to church. Of course, it's like they became themselves again. They became us again. We've got our own turbulence ahead in the form of a vacancy. It could be unsettling. How are we going to respond? Are we going to let ourselves drift apart? Or are we going to come together? Will our members meetings see record low numbers or record high numbers? Will we let our fellowship groups, so important in church life, slowly disperse or pull together all the closer? And what about our prayer gatherings? Will they shrink in size or or might they mushroom? Now, talking of prayer, of course, that is what they come together to do. They come together, secondly, to pray. Verses 24 to 28, they come together to pray. And of course, again, this is just what they did in the book of Acts, didn't they? And what were those 120 disciples doing in that upper room in chapter 1 together? They were praying. Now, after Pentecost, what did the new church devote themselves to? Prayer. Uh, many of those uh, Pentecost uh, crowd, of course, were Jewish, and therefore they were familiar with the idea of prayer. The Old Testament is filled with prayer. But have you ever thought about how their praying would change after Pentecost? Now, recently on Sunday evenings, we've looked together at the Lord's Prayer. We prayed it together earlier on, and we've noticed how radical the first line of the Lord's Prayer would have been to them. You can imagine the gasps from Jesus' disciples when he started this new model prayer with, with words that no one before had dared to say to God, our Father. It was a new closeness, a new intimacy with the Creator, a new confidence, praying by the blood of Jesus' death on the cross. Confidence to approach, not our boss, not even only our Lord, our Father. And then you can imagine the apostles passing that on to that 3,000, you know, a sort of post-Pentecost seminar on prayer. Now, I, I know you guys think you know how to pray, but listen, listen what Jesus told us. You try praying like this, our Father. And so this new church turns to prayer with a new enthusiasm. You can imagine them, can't you, rolling the word Father around the, the mouth, daring to pray to their heavenly Father the most, uh, the, the biggest things they could think of, world-changing, history-shaping prayers to a heavenly Father who promises to listen when they come in Jesus' name. Those early prayer meetings must have been utterly thrilling. And so turning to prayer here in chapter 4 is just the church's habit. It was obvious, of course, they prayed. Now, it's true that they don't start their prayer here with our Father, and not because they don't believe it, but because the thing motivating them to pray in the present crisis wasn't so much God's closeness, but God's 
power. Verse 24, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. Sovereign Lord. Jesus' death had given them direct access to the one who made everything from planets to pineapples. Everything Attenborough has ever described was made by the Lord. And notice they know that he's sovereign not only over creation but over human history. Now that quotation there we noticed is taken from Psalm 2. We read it earlier. It's a psalm of profound confidence in the security of God's king. God has set the king of his choosing on the throne, and any attempt to dislodge him makes God laugh. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. I don't know what makes you laugh. I, uh, I spent the latest um, bank holiday in the company of my nieces and nephews, and they really make me laugh. Sometimes deliberately, often accidentally. Uh, children, can be, children can be very funny, can't they? They're great company. Uh, we have a crash downstairs, not to twos. Uh, imagine uh, there are the little uh, kiddos, they're playing with the toys. The adults are keeping uh, an eye on them and they're chatting away to each other. Maybe I don't know what goes on, goes on in the crash. But what the adults don't know is that the two-year-olds are plotting. A look here, a little gesture there. They're getting themselves into position to take over the church. Okay, that's really stupid. Uh, babies can't take over the church. It's cute, it's funny, it's pointless. Of course, there's nothing cute about the plot in Psalm 2. The plot in Psalm 2 is wicked and just as pointless. The plots against God's king make God laugh. That's the level of total control he has over the world, over creation, over human history, and over his gospel plan to exalt and enthrone the Lord Jesus over his salvation kingdom. And his sovereignty even extends to the cross. You see how they connect Psalm 2 there with what happened to Jesus on the cross, verse 27. Have a look with me, verse 27. Truly in this city were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. You see what they know? Even something as horrific and evil as the cross, something as wicked, as hostile, as totally opposed to God as the crucifixion of his son, even the cross was part of his plan. What amazing confidence that would have given them in the middle of their turbulence. The Lord is sovereign over all of it. He isn't worried about any of it. His king is on his throne forever. So they start with the psalm, they connect it to the cross, and then they connect it to their own situation, and so with great confidence, they pray. Now, it's natural, therefore, for us to ask whether we're in the habit of doing this ourselves. But to ask, for example, if others were to see us spending time together as Christian believers, how long would it take before they realized we were Christians? 
We enjoy being together. Do we pray together? Just think of your closest friends here at Duke Street. When did you last pray with them? Are you in the habit of suggesting that you pray together? We should be honest here, it can be an awkward thing. Not entirely sure why, but it can be, can't it? We, we perhaps can worry about coming over as super spiritual. I don't want to look too pious by suggesting we pray all the time. But it's a wonderful thing to do, isn't it? Doesn't it deepen our fellowship together? It reminds us that the Lord is at the heart of our life together, our Christian friendships. Can you think of a single time when you got over your awkwardness and you prayed with someone else and then you regretted it afterwards? Of course you can't. Prayer is so vital in the Christian life, we should expect to face resistance when we try to do it. Does the devil hate anything more than a praying Christian? Or even worse, Christians praying together? Some of us have organized ourselves into prayer triplets, wonderful thing to do, and meeting up weekly or fortnightly or monthly or whatever it is to share prayer requests and then simply to pray for each other. We make a point, we try to make a point of praying in our fellowship groups. We do want to study the Bible together, but we also want to make sure we pray together as well. And of course, every fortnight on a Thursday evening, a group of us meet in this room here to pray. It's one of the least flashy meetings in the calendar. I'm not sure what our most flashy meeting is, to be honest, but it's one of our least flashy ones. There are no bells and whistles, no gimmicks. But it is arguably the most important meeting we have. It's interesting, you know, the highest numbers we've ever had at the prayer gathering were during lockdown. And there may be all sorts of reasons for that. Uh, Maybe it was because our diaries were suddenly completely clear. (laughs) It was helpful, actually, for that, wasn't it? But maybe it was also because we knew we needed to pray. We knew we needed to come together to pray. When do we not need to pray? Our prayer gatherings here look a little bit like Acts 4. We begin by listening to the Bible together. It reminds us to whom we pray, the sovereign Lord, nothing outside his control. And so we pray with confidence. And what is it we pray for above everything else? Gospel progress. That's the third thing to notice here. They came together to pray for gospel progress, verses 29 to 31. Can you see that that's what they're praying for there in verses 29 and 30? Remember the context? The gospel's been going out with saving power and the authorities have tried to ban it. And so, verse 29, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. And verse 30 is simply a prayer that the accompanying proofs of the gospel at that stage in church history, would continue as well. Now, I ask myself, Simon, what would you have prayed in their situation? I wonder if if I'd been preparing that prayer meeting, I might have made a PowerPoint with things like, you know, pray for protection, pray for safety for the apostles, pray for a change in government, that'd be helpful. 
and pray for Peter and John to get the rest they need after their ordeal. That's all fine. Maybe they did pray for those things as well. But what they ask for here is for continued gospel progress. That's their passion. They know that they've been caught up in something absolutely enormous. The death and the resurrection of Jesus has changed everything. They now view the world and everything in it through a Jesus-shaped lens. They relate everything they experience to the epic project that they've been called to play a part in. And these new gospel, Christ-centered priorities now fill their praying, Lord, don't stop now. And it examines us, doesn't it? What is it that really excites us? I mean, take me, for example. I'm, I'm buzzing at the moment about one of the biggest events of the year. I'm sure you are too. You've got it in your calendar. You can't wait. You're counting down the days. You know what it is, the ashes. Yeah? Mm, okay, maybe not. Five five-day test matches. England versus Australia, cricket. I'm, I'm listening to all the podcasts. I'm reading all the BBC Sport articles. I cannot wait but I have to concede that in the end, though it might be the most magnificent expression of the most magnificent sport, and if you're not sure about that, come speak to me afterwards if you dare. In the end, it is just sport. Am I that excited about God's gospel mission? The biggest thing that's ever happened in human history, the biggest thing happening in the world today the progress of the gospel around the corner and all around the world. Is that what fires us up? Is that what gets us out of bed in the morning? One of the great reasons to pray with other people is you get to hear what they say in prayer. There are people in this church family who are more excited about the cause of the gospel today than they've ever been, and you can hear it in the way they pray you can hear that their prayers haven't shrunk to the size of their own lives. And when they pray, it's not so much that they're calling God down into their things. He's calling them up into His. They pray big, bold, world-changing prayers. They pray for gospel progress. We're about to enter a pastoral vacancy. What are we going to pray for? Yes, of course we pray for a senior minister. Of course we do. And because we're praying to a sovereign Lord, we pray with confidence. He knows what he's doing. He's in complete control of everything that's happening and will happen. Why do we want a senior minister, though? Gospel progress. And while we're looking for one, what else do we pray for? Gospel progress progress, the news of Jesus Christ going out all over the world. Do we, do we really think that God is going to wait for the next minister to be appointed before his gospel advances here? <laughs> of course he's not. Nothing can stop his gospel. And it's true that in the course of a vacancy, we might have to be wise in what we can do. We may have hard decisions to make. We'll need to avoid burning ourselves out and all that sort of thing. Are we going to let ourselves stand still? Are we going to hit pause on gospel advance, hunker down and hide for a while? Is that what they did here? Why would we do that? Is the Lord not sovereign? Has God's saving arm lost its power? Has Jesus stepped away from his throne? 
course he hasn't. God is calling us to be part of something extraordinary. And that begins with prayer. So let's take inspiration from this church in Acts 4. And whatever the turbulence ahead, let's resolve to come together to pray, and in particular for gospel progress. Look, it doesn't have to be at the prayer gathering. That's not the the big point here. I know some of us can't come along with our life circumstances don't allow it. Though a a large prayer gathering is a great indication of church health. But let's make prayer an increasing feature of our life together. Let's join the Lord in what he's doing in his world. Let's ask him to do big things here and everywhere. Let's pray for boldness in our workplaces and on our streets. And who knows? What if the Lord wants to use the vacancy to do something special here? What if he wants to teach us to trust in him, to depend on him? What might he do among us when we come together to pray? Let's do that together now. Let's pray.